On Message is a podcast from MHP Communications. Hello and welcome to the latest On Message podcast. I'm Adam Batstone and I would like to invite you aboard our TARDIS where we will be travelling back in time. Our destination is March 2008 when the world was in the grip of the financial crash. My fellow time travellers will be looking back and forward to address the question, what is the reputation of the financial services sector now? So let's go back in time. Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister. Slumdog Millionaire had just been named Best Picture at the Oscars. Duffy was number one in the charts with her song Mercy. And perhaps most extraordinary of all, Arsenal were top of the Premier League. So with me in the TARDIS are Ricky Knox, who's the CEO of Tandem Bank. Ricky, hi. What were you up to in 2008? Um, I I was trying desperately to exit uh, a business which must be said sadly collapsed in October um, uh, when when Lehman's went down. So not particularly fond memories of that year. No, not a great year. (laughs) And also with us is Holly Marshall, who's Director of Corporate Affairs at Oldermore Bank. Holly, what were you up to 10 years ago? 10 years ago, I was working for UBS Investment Bank in Manhattan. Um, and I actually distinctly remember getting off the, the bus um, on 6th Avenue and walking uh, through Times Square and looking up at the boardroom um, at uh, Lehman Brothers Building and seeing a very, very large meeting taking place. Interesting to have been a fly on the wall on that occasion, I imagine. And also here is Mike Robb, who's the Head of Financial Services at MHP Communications. Mike, where were you in 2008? Vividly, in a very different industry, uh, in the gambling industry, I was at Betfair, and we were planning what markets we were setting up to take advantage of of what was going on and get people interested in. Next CEO to go, uh, what Gordon Brown was going to do, all that kind of stuff. So it was was a good time, really interesting time to be there, but but thankfully not in financial services at the time. I was going to say, possibly a good time to be on that side of the fence rather than in the thick of it. Exactly. And also, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Oscar Williams Groot, who's a senior reporter with Business Insider. Oscar, I've got a horrible feeling that you might not have joined the world of work yet in 2008. What were you up to? (laughs) Uh, 2008, I was finishing my A-levels and thinking this is perhaps not the best time to be going to university and thinking about job prospects. Anyway, you're all very welcome (laughs) on board the TARDIS. As I said, the intention this morning is to look back at how the world was in 2008 and how it is now, what the reputation of the financial services sector is. And I'm going to start us off just for a small bit of fun by listening to a short archive clip and I'm going to ask as a quiz question, see if anyone can name who is speaking. Every one of you should feel confident and proud. Our firm is strong today and we will emerge from this cycle even stronger. We've done it before, and we will do it again. So, who was that speaking in 2008? Donald Trump, is it not? It's not Donald Trump. I was about to say, you can definitely be forgiven for thinking it was Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah, it's not Donald Trump. It is, in fact, Dick Fould, who is, you may recall, the CEO, was the CEO of Lehman Brothers. and uh, Giving a lesson in never making predictions. Absolutely that, absolutely (laughs) that. That was an internal message to his staff to uh, inspire confidence. And as Mike correctly says, uh, gives us all a little reminder of the danger of making any kind of confident prediction of that nature. So Lehman Brothers were probably the most uh, notable global failure uh, from that time. 
Ricky, from your perspective, how, how far have we come, do you think, in terms of repairing the, the damage? I think we've come a long way. And, you know, we've got in the room here, you know, uh, all the more uh, represented. And, you know, all the more was the first wave of new banks. We hadn't seen new banks in the UK for a long time. There wasn't any competition at all. Uh, we had Metro. We had all the more a, a wave of private equity banks that really were coming in and serving all those niches that the big banks had had left behind. Uh, there, there's been a, a sort of first wave, which, you know, and these are businesses that have now IPO'd and been extremely successful. Um, and there's a second wave coming through now of digital challengers who perhaps are uh, taking the banks more on on their home ground. And, and indeed, I think there's already been a lot of evidence, not only from the first wave of challengers having built substantial businesses, you know, five, 10 billion pound balance sheets, um, but also the second wave of challengers coming through and already starting to get very significant customer traction, where if you look at the customer acquisition year uh, numbers last year, the, the absolute number of new customers, there are new digital challengers that required more customers than all the banks put together. And Holly, what's your perspective? Do you think that if there's a single kind of legacy that we can kind of point to, as Ricky said, the sort of growth of the challenger banks and the, and the new kind of digital banking that we see these days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree with Ricky. I mean, I think if you cast your mind back 10 years ago and, and what, you know, the financial crisis sort of told us was that I think, you know, customers and consumers um, lost total faith um, in financial services. And I think that that really did open up the door for a new wave of banking. And I think, you know, Aldermore certainly is is, is one of those um, success stories of the last 10 years. If we think about, um, you know, what we've been able to achieve and, and actually carving out, you know, I think a very distinct uh, position for our ourselves in, in the marketplace. Um, but, but actually, if you think about 10 years ago, um, starting a bank at that time, actually, you know, that the, the, you could almost sometimes hear the laughter coming out of the doors um, as you were going around seeking uh, private equity backing for starting a new bank um, during the financial crisis. The, the, uh, the ability that we've had over the last 10 years to, to really build um, something that, that customers tell us um, is, um, is actually something that's quite unbanky, actually. And I think, um, you know, that, that phrase being un and Banky um, is something we love at Aldermore. And, and Mike, from your perspective, I know you've recently conducted a survey uh, of public opinion about the financial services sector on behalf of MHP. What would you say we've found as a result of that survey? People are far more positive about the financial services sector as a whole than you would think. It was, it was above 50%, 53% positive about the sector, even more positive about banks, about 55%. But for me, one of the reasons for that is that we all think of the financial crisis as the thing that killed reputation. And I don't think it was that. I think it was the trigger. But it was the, it was what happened in the sort of five-year period after that, that that really, I think, hit the reputation hard. Think of LIBOR, think of rate rigging, think of running money for drug lords, all those kind of stories that added up. But LIBOR, for me, was the, the sort of the public mindset that people really thought, you know what, this is what the industry has been doing for a long, long time. And actually, if you think of the last five years, there's not been anything that big. There have been individual specific things that have happened in certain organisations that have, have damaged their own reputation. But actually, industry-wide, you know, red-top headlines every day for three weeks, there hasn't been anything of that scale. That has helped the mindset. And the other point that, that was interesting is that the young are very, very positive, far more positive than, than older people. So if you're under 26... We forget that you didn't really use financial services during the financial crisis. So it's not even a thing. 
Um, and I think with, with banks like, like Ricky's in particular uh, and the new digital challengers, there's a whole new wave of customer using a whole different type of product that didn't even exist 10 years ago. So the landscape, when we say the landscape's changed, I mean, it really has changed. And Oscar, from your perspective, you, you, you're a genuine, real, young person. <laughs> Is Mike right? The, the one point I wanted to make there was that I think it's the reason that a lot of young people probably don't mind banks or think they're pretty positive is they haven't really used banks. They have current accounts and they've got those current accounts because they've been paid by the banks. You know, they've been given sort of student bonus sign-on fees because banks know once they get you in the door, the likelihood is you'll stay for life. So if you're just getting free money in a current account, what you know, what's not to like? And from the, the wider point there about the, you know, the, that kind of meltdown that happened in 2008, do you think for people of your sort of generation that that just feels like ancient history? Is there a legacy perception? Uh, people tend to dislike banks generally, but like banks specifically. Mm. Um, and that's something that I see a lot, is that people generally are happy to bash the banks, but when it comes to their own, if you ask for specifics around, oh, so what, it is, it, what is it that you don't like about your bank? Often they're, you know, they struggle to really, maybe a bit of a poor customer service or it goes down once in a while. But generally people aren't that bothered about specific banks. But I definitely think there's a uh, generational mistrust of banks. I mean, just look at the support for Jeremy Corbyn. Much of that is around bashing finance. It goes after the, the general idea of banking and those sorts of things. The point about um, people liking their own bank is an interesting one because that was also true through the crisis. Some of the data that's out there from eight, seven, eight years ago showed that even then, at the height of the crisis, people broadly were very positive about the own, their own bank and their own asset manager or whatever provider it would be. And I think it comes down to the fact that it's all ultimately about product and service, right? If you're a customer and you're getting something that you perceive to be good and beneficial and makes your life easier, you're getting treated fairly and so on, you're far more positive. And people know whether or not that's true about their own bank, but they don't necessarily have a view of the industry as a whole. I mean, two two things. One, of you, you mentioned sort of 55% positive for the banks. I mean, that is barely positive. That sort of, uh, you know, we're in, we're in Brexit territory two here. Two five. But, but I think the interesting thing here, you know, along with that great adage, which has been quoted at me since I first decided to uh, start a bank about 500 times, which is you're more likely to get divorced than change your bank. Um, the, the interesting thing here, and I was I actually was at dinner last week on Monday and I was sitting next to with sort of CEOs and chairman of, of big businesses and, and talking talking to people about their banks and talking to mostly uh, an older generation of people. Um, and what was really, really interesting is, you know, I'd start the conversation by saying, you know, well, I'm doing digital banking, you know, uh, are you happy with your bank? And most people answer that question, yes. They go, yes. And then I go, tell me about your last experience. What was your last point of contact with your bank? And about half the time, they go, oh, no, that was bloody awful. You know, and, and so, and then it's interesting, you start undigging the layers of the onion. You go, well, why are you happy with this institution? I mean, would you be cool if Uber had been super freaking rude to you on the last, last time you spoke to them? No, you wouldn't be happy at all. And, and it's just that the, the expectations that people have of banks, it's expected that you have to wait 20 minutes on the phone. It's expected mm. that they're going to send you completely impersonal and really rude letters. Or as I had the other day from my bank, which remained nameless, a letter through the post just after I'd sold a bit of one of my companies saying, would you like a personal loan? It's like, come on, don't send me a personal loan offer the day after a chunk of cash arrives in my account. I'm assuming when you say from your bank, you mean you're from Tandem Bank? No, no, no. I mean, from a, not, <laughs> I'm pleased to say bank. it was uh, um, I, at that time I was not using Tandem okay. as my primary bank. And Holly, from your point of view, the, the value when your customers become your become your advocates. What do you do at Aldermore to try to achieve that kind of happy 
situation where people are saying Oldermore's great and they're doing their, your work for you? One of the things that, that we did uh, back in 2013, and actually if you think again back, back to 2013, um, and again, still still in that phase of, of people not you know being particularly happy with banks, and I think we're only just coming out of that, and I think that's what this report is, is starting to show. The decision that we took as a business was actually to allow our customers to rate and review us online. So we launched something called Ratings and Reviews on our website, which gave our customers the ability, um, after they'd opened up a savings account with us or taken out a mortgage, um, to leave us direct feedback on our website to tell us how they found the, the experience. And um, that's something that it, you know, exists still today. Uh, we have, I think, nearly 10,000 reviews on the website, completely unedited, with the exception of profanity, of course, if there is any. Um, and, and that is such valuable, rich insight for us as a business, because there will be occasions when we do get things wrong. Um, and that, that you know, is, is something that we have to put our hands up you know, to and we have to apologise and we have to sort it out. But the value that that then breeds in terms of the, the, the insight into back into the business to address specific customer issues um, is, is phenomenal. We then have this wonderful insight that we then share back into the business with the thousand colleagues that work for us that actually can then see the benefits of, of the, the customer experience that they've provided. Um, and that, you know, from, from an employee morale perspective, is um, you know is, is is huge. Just on the flip side of that, I think that 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 reminds me of the other big change we've seen in the last ten years, which has nothing to do with the financial crash, which is the rise of social media. And I think the flip side of not having this sort of transparency and engagement with your customer is you can no longer ignore them. You know, it's not an era where you can just say, oh well, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to write a letter to the paper that the paper will ignore. Blah blah blah. They can go on Twitter and they can completely slate your reputation. They can set up these Facebook groups where they can mobilise uh, people across the country who are also upset with your service, and they can build up a critical mass that perhaps wasn't possible 10 years ago. You know, if you want customers to recommend your service, that you know, the first thing you need to do is provide a good service. Um, uh, and I do think it's really important to focus on, you know, there's a, I think there's an obsession in new digital businesses with, with driving fantastic product. And the first thing you have to do is get great product market fit, which means provide a service that really addresses real problems that your customers have. And if you look at the way we create our services, we try and identify customer jobs to be done, so pain points that customers have, and then try and fix those. Um, uh, and that is a very different process than the one that, that takes place in, in, in traditional banks. I think the other key thing is, I mean, and this is where we think at least we're taking it a bit further. Um, you know, we when we set out to build Tandem, Matt and I, Matt Cooper, who was one of the founders of Capital One and I, set out to build what we call the good bank. And what do we mean by that? We mean a bank that actually uh, prioritizes its customers' interest, and in some cases, above the profit motive. Banks have been incredibly efficient at driving profit. They're siloed into you know little profit silos that are, where people have absolute ownership of P&L, which is highly efficient at driving out profits, but actually not necessarily efficient at serving customer needs. One of the things we do is we actually think in terms of our remuneration structures. So we have a maximum bonus of 12% and the, av- and the tar- on target bonus is 9%. So we don't use big bonuses that encourage, obviously, profit performance. And I think, I think bringing the measurement of, you know, how much you've done for your customers into your organization, into your org structure, into your remuneration, um, and even you know, coming back to a banky term, third line of defense, bring it in and having some sort of customer audit are all things that none of the banks do today and that I think they should all be considering in, or, in order to actually do something good for their customers. Mike, we've talked a lot about banking. 
I'm conscious that financial services covers a very wide area. How elsewhere in the sector has reputation been damaged or been restored? Well, at the time of the crisis, it was a big bugbear from everyone that wasn't a bank saying our reputation is in tatters. Insurance, asset management, etc. You know, they they hadn't actually done anything to, to to take part in this. They had their own problems over the years, but but that wasn't them. And that has something that I think they were tied into by by association. But now banks are well ahead of them in terms of reputation, which again is interesting because actually if you take insurance, for example, payouts are at record high, but yet there's not that perception amongst customers. So clearly something's not adding up. But insurance is actually quite a good example in the context of what we just discussed is it's a grudge purchase. Nobody wants to pay for insurance. You just need it when you have your home flooded or you crash a car or whatever it may be. And I think to an extent that was also true in banking maybe 10, 15 years ago. You wanted to buy a house. You need a mortgage. Do you want a mortgage? Not really, but you want a house. Whereas now, there is much more of a lifestyle element, I think, when it comes to actually choosing your financial services provider, whether it be insurance or particularly in banking, because I think the digital element is there. But but equally in, in, in things like insurance, where you can you know get two hours coverage on a car that you're about to drive. You know, the, the product set has completely changed the kind of ways that people are working with finance. Um, the, the one other interesting thing in terms of other sectors is that nobody understands what asset management is or what pensions are. Um, and that's worrying on the one hand in the sense that they need to because from a personal point of view they're important um, but there's the other side that they don't understand what they actually do with the money what does that money actually do in reality for the economy does that matter that they they don't know it not really but would it help them have a better view of them when it comes to the next thing that goes wrong it probably would Oscar what about from your perspective as a journalist someone reporting in this sector where do you think people's levels of understanding are about things like asset management and different types of products and services i think they're generally pretty low to be honest i yeah. think the majority of the public don't even want to engage with things on that level let alone begin to think about how they differentiate all those sorts of things um for something like asset management i think the, the, the sort of popular perception is that's something for rich people and you know why don't i have money you know those l- lucky rich people the one thing that worries me slightly is if pensions take a particular nosedive in terms of reputation because We've seen big schemes blow up, particularly recently. And if people start to mistrust pensions and therefore start stop putting more money into their long... We've got a major, major societal problem there that's already pretty bad, but it'll get really bad. But I think just on that point, what's interesting about that is that the pensions that have blown up, uh, the ones that really caught the public attention is where there is a bad guy to blame, you know, yeah. Philip Green, somebody like that. Nobody is really splashing on the pension providers or you know it's not on itv news that whoever was behind the toys r us pension has now got a deficit or something like that when i looked at the survey i was struck by the really low numbers of recognition for the term fintech and fintech obviously a phrase which gets banded about but from the survey it would appear that from the man in the street it's an almost meaningless phrase holly what do you think of fintech is it actually useful to talk about it or is it just a uh, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that, that for me, that's um, something that comes down to lack of awareness. And if we think about the challenger bank phrase, um, I'd actually be really interested in doing a, another survey, actually, to, to ask people what, whether they recognise the phrase challenger bank still, because um, that was, a you know, again, a, 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 I think a, a phrase that was certainly used at an industry level. But I don't think it's something that actually resonates with the general population. Um, and I think, you know, that that is true of fintech. It is 
a new emerging um, area where we're looking at you know providing our um, banking services in a digital way uh, and we've we've coined a phrase fintech but to the ordinary person on the street I don't think that's something that resonates with them at all at the moment. Ricky what do you make of the term fintech useful or irritating? Well it's been it's been useful for me personally uh, because we started um, a fund called Hexagon Partners um, that was to invest in technology disruption and retail financial services, which actually was quite a big mouthful. And so uh, <laughs> fintech was quite handy in shortening that. No, but but more generally, I actually don't think it's important that, that people, I, I completely agree, there's loads of self-regarding conferences where everyone wanders around and thinks they're sort of kings or dons of fintech, but um, uh, it, it doesn't matter to the public. But I'm not sure it needs to either. I mean, I think the thing that needs to matter is, is customers need to understand there's an alternative out there. And I, I don't think that has really reached the mass perception yet. You know, whether it's challenger banks or digital challenger banks, the sort of, you know, I don't remember what the survey said particularly, but you know, the sort of 10% awareness here. This isn't a mass market thing yet. I, I think there's an interesting thing going on here, which is that allows, you know, people to build their reputation, hone their proposition uh, before we go out there in the early adopter market. Um, but I do think that that is going to change. And I think, you know, I would have said, even at the beginning of last year, um, I would have said that was, you know, three to five years away. My view in the last 12 months has changed. I think that is 12 to 24 months away. A couple of things happened last year. One was the rapid acceleration of, of, of the digital challengers into, you know, really significant customer numbers. And the second one was was actually the rise of, of blockchain in the in the last quarter of the year. Um, where what we're seeing is something, you know, I'd been talking, sort of being laughed at in conferences when I was like, look, you know, uh, distributed ledgers and next internet, really important fundamental technology. Um, and at the end, by the end of the year, you had, you know, big bank CEOs standing up on stage and saying the same thing. So, uh, and, you know, I think there's been a shift there, you know, one of the underlying technologies and many underlying technologies that are driving disruption at the moment. But I think... I think there is that that drives the change in attitude, and in the same way that in the 1999 sort of stock exchange bubble, uh, you know, and and sort of fervor around that drove the success of Google and Amazon and that first generation of internet companies. I think the you know the the wave of uh, um, of the rise of Bitcoin, Ether, and other currencies has really sort of driven interest and driven talent and capital into that sector. There's some great figures around, you know, actually last year, more money, more institutional investor money went into that sector than went into venture capital in total, which is pretty impressive. So, you know, I think there's some, I think there's, there's change afoot and the change is accelerating. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think the one thing that um, you know I, I would say is that um, there is still a lack of understanding of um, what fintech can do, and certainly cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, that's been a huge story over the last few weeks. Um, and I think lack of understanding, and then also um, earning trust and earning the right to play. Um, for, for you know, for me, those are the two things that really take time to build. Uh, and I you know I think we've we have got you know, you know probably a, a good few years yet before. I think we've probably got a banking landscape that does look very different to, to today. The thing that hit me with this figure was that it's an obvious thing that's actually staring us in the face, but when you see the figure, you get it. The public doesn't need to know about fintech as a term or as, or as an industry in its own right. But I do think, to your point, Ricky, there are people that walk around as if this thing is sort of the solution to all our, our problems and, and 60 million people know about fintech and that's all they talk about every day. It's not. It's about service. It's mm. about product. Whether it's coming from... You know, Barclays launching a new app, or it's or, it, or it's Tandem doing something. You know, it doesn't really matter as long as the product and and what the customer gets is what they need. Well, it's probably time we ought to have another of our quiz questions, and we're going to hear 
from another notorious figure from 2008. So have a guess who this was speaking. Well, Mr Black, I wouldn't want there to be any doubt in anyone's mind at all, other than I'm extremely sorry that this has come about. I echo entirely uh, the sentiments that the chairman expressed on behalf of all of the board earlier on. This is a, something about which I am extremely sorry. Um, and I'm um, extremely sad to be leaving the company at these extremely difficult times. Holly, I think you have a clue. I've got, I've got to get this one right. Um, Sir Fred Goodwin. Correct. The formerly Sir Fred Goodwin. That's yeah. right. Fred yes. the Shred. Fred the Shred. So the reason I wanted to mention him is because he became this sort of you know, inverse poster boy for the uh, banking crash and maybe a sort of figure totally sort of linked with the sort of bad old days of banking. What do you think, Holly, from your perspective, the banking sector has done to try to sort of rid itself of this? Yeah, I think the industry as a, as a, as a whole um, remains concerned, I think, about what the reputation and the damage to the reputation of the financial services um, sector has on people wanting to join it um, and the talent pool coming, uh, you know, coming into the industry. Um, you know, the financial services industry makes a significant contribution to the UK economy uh, and, and we shouldn't forget that. And we should, as an industry, think very you know, long and hard about making sure that we still have the right people wanting to join that industry. Um, and that we have that talent pool, and I think the industry, um, you know, really needs to focus, um, you know, their their attention on ensuring that we do address that, because I think that is one of the the symptoms of um, the damage you know, to the reputation um, over the last ten years of finance. Look, it's an interesting one because I think from outside, uh, it often feels like you know it's pure lip service, and I, you know, even when I was first looking at coming into banking, I think I spent a lot of time sort of generally slagging off the big banks and and saying saying all these nasty things. Having having met the guys inside those institutions, I think there's a slightly different situation. I think they're faced with a um, an economic equilibrium. Uh, which doesn't allow them to really change their models in a way that works for the customer because they'd have to give up so much profit that it just wouldn't be palatable for their shareholders. And then secondly, they're in a structural no-win, which is they've got, uh, frankly, employees who they've hired because of their money orientation and their profit orientation and structures that they set up to deliver profit, which is what they're, aim what they're aiming to do. And, and, and those are quite hard to flex. It's quite hard to change those. So I think, um, yeah, I think there's a real challenge for the banks, but they are trying. They're trying hard. Oscar. Just, just in terms of uh, these points as well, I mean, one thing that I don't think we have really mentioned is the role of governments and regulation in the last 10 years. And I think that has had a big effect on both attracting talent but also hanging on to people. Um, I mean, one of my um, friends worked briefly at one of the big investment banks. And at the end of it, he said, you know, they were treated like a criminal in there. You know, they had to sort of hand their phones in, everything was monitored. You know, I heard an anecdote about uh, another person being called into the compliance to explain themselves because they were using... Uh, sort of little code words about dates they'd been on, because obviously they didn't want it to get flagged up. But if you use code, then that's even more suspicious. But these types of things, you know, it's, it's just no fun in banks anymore. It, you know, it used to be the place where the, the brightest and the smartest would go um, to have their uh, minds flexed and worked out. And now you just have to be constantly on guard. You seem to be jumping through loads of hoops. And, you know, why bother? On that recruitment question, have you detected any sort of slowdown in the kind of people who want to come and work with you or do you think it's still a buoyant sector where people young graduates women and things like that want to come and work i mean i was 
I'd say we are in the opposite situation because we have two different things. A, there's a whole lot of bankers wanting to bail out of banking and come into tandem and the new banks. Um, uh, and I would say we, um, you know, one of the challenges we try and maintain below half, you know, bankers uh, diversity in our organization. Uh, um, and, and, but, and we do have a lot of people, even from the technology sector, because people see us, you know, as fintech, and that's quite hot within 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 technology. I would say, I'm mean, coming back to the other question, diversity. I mean, we've you know, we've we've massively increased diversity on on a gender basis um, over the course of the last year. But that's hard. I mean, we're financial services and we're technology, and both of those are male dominated industries. Talent availability into you know the digital banks in particular is probably less of an issue. Um, but I do think it's a real problem for the big banks. So to wrap up, you'll be pleased to hear I'm going to finish with a couple more questions. But the good news from your point of view is there are no right or wrong answers. This is purely yes, no opinion. One question each. So Mike, tell me, in your view, in 10 years time, will the big four banks in the UK still be Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds and RBS? No. No. Okay, very good. And Ricky, Britain still be in the European Union or will be well and truly Brexited by then? I, I'd love to hope that we would be, uh, um, but, but, but probably the answer is no. <laughs> and Oscar, speaking from the, your youthful perspective, this probably still seems a long way away, but will the retirement age in the UK be 70 in 10 years? Time? Where do you think you'll be retiring? Yes. yes. Okay, <laughs> I'm a pessimist. Good. 80. So, and Holly, <laughs> from your point of view, how about the number of bank branches? Where will we be in 10 years' time in terms of high street bank access? I think there'll be significantly less. And for all four of you, checkbooks still exist in 10 years' time? No. No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> People always overestimate yeah. the, 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 you the, know, the, of the check. Yes, yeah. but not used. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, look, thank you very much indeed to my guests, Mike Robb, Ricky Knox, Oscar Williams-Groot and Holly Marshall. This has been the On Message podcast and I've been Adam Batson. Thank you very much indeed. message is written and produced by MHP Communications and Mixonics Audio Production. You can find out more on our website, mhpc.com. And you can find us on Twitter, at MHPC.